deeper and deeper they descend, into the tangled tunnels of the underpipes. They move as fast as Cadmus is able, but the healer's breathing is laboured, and he has to stop and rest frequently. After being held for so long in confinement, Mina knows that he must be at the very limits of his endurance. They pass through a cavernous machine room filled with monolithic, dwarven-constructed apparatus, whose purpose even Mina cannot discern. They travel past huge overhead pipes, endlessly disgorging raw sewage in a thundering waterfall of filth. Despite Cadmus's dire warnings, the knocking on the pipes has long since stopped, with no sign of the pipe runners. But a new fear has begun to gnaw at Mina's gut. If she had to work her way back from here to the place where she started, Mina is not at all sure she could manage it. This place is an impossible maze, with no rhyme or reason to the twisting, ever-branching conduits and tunnels. Hundreds of feet below the bustling streets of Kairos, in the darkness and in deadly danger, Mina is coming to realise that she is hopelessly lost. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer. Mina entered the underpipes and discovered Cadmus, a devotant of the lifebringer colossus, Ankara. Cadmus had been held by the pipe runners for months in unspeakable conditions. Freeing the healer, Mina realised the two of them would not be able to ascend the pool shaft together, and she was not just going to leave him to his fate. Instead, the pair fled into the tunnels, hoping to find a way to escape. But so far, all they have found is more tunnels and more danger. Just a little further, Cadmus. We need to find somewhere defensible we can rest properly. The healer can only nod in reply. The pallor of his skin and the sheen of sweat on his brow evidence that if they don't find somewhere soon, it's likely to collapse. Mina is in not much better shape. The burns inflicted by the fire snakes are raw and painful, and the cut to her thigh has opened again during the forced march. She's tired, hungry and thirsty and she knows that what limited supplies she has brought for herself will not last long with two. She tries to distract herself by speculating about her surroundings. The underpipes link to the city at countless points, so there must be access if only she can work out where. She visualises the shape of the great chain link, recalling the width and length of the straits from her school lessons, calculating the interior and exterior radii 
in an attempt to estimate whereabouts they might be in relation to the city above. Of course, there is another variable, and one that's been nagging at her ever since they passed the sewage falls. Those pipes, each at least 40 feet in diameter, had emerged from above them, their source lost in darkness. But from what she could see, and from the echoes in that place, the ceiling of that chamber must have been at least 200 feet above them. And the sewage, pouring past their walkway and into the darkness below, sounded like it was travelling at least another 200 feet downwards. They have been travelling downwards fairly consistently since they met, which doesn't quite add up. She's approached the city by airship, and so she's seen how it sits upon the link. At the highest point of the link, the city sits nearly flush to it, with buildings of the lower city districts extending downwards as the sides of the link curve away. But for them to have travelled to these depths, the only logical conclusion is that they're within the link itself. That the underpipes somehow extend into the very core of the immutable, unworkable black iron first carved by the dwarves in the aftermath of the Sundering. Something that should be completely impossible. She can feel implications of that thought, branching and extending out to some unseen conclusion. But Cadmus interrupts her with more practical concerns. Mina, are you seeing this? She looks around, realising for the first time that they have entered what appears to be a ruined outpost of some sort, clearly once fortified, but now smashed and shattered beyond repair. The ground is piled high with rubble, bent and rusted sheet metal and iron pipes, tattered scraps of tarpaulin. A thick metal door, buckled and dented, lies in the centre of what looks like some sort of bunker, smashed clear off its hinges. The whole place looks as though it has been hit with a wrecking ball, repeatedly. What happened here? Mina asks, picking through the wreckage. Oh! Cadmus hurries over and then sees what Mina has found. There is little more than clothing and skeletal remains. Cadmus gently examines the corpse before saying, I'd guess he's been dead for a year, maybe two. Died from a hugely powerful blow by the looks of it. See how the lower skull, the, the clavicle and the ribs are crushed. Mina stands, looking around and spots a half-open leather pouch nearby. Within, she can see the tantalising glint of gold. She approaches cautiously, gesturing Cadmus back. This is just a touch too tempting, don't you think? Let's just make sure there's no... Aha! Here, you see? Pressure plate beneath the rubble. Let's just follow this back. She traces a path to a comparatively undamaged metal box attached to a wall, and two curved brass funnels extend out on either side. I think this is some sort of alarm. Perhaps it was a warning system back before the place was destroyed? But now it's been hooked up to that pouch over there, designed to provide someone with notice if they have unwelcome visitors. Which suggests that whoever that someone is, they are close enough to be able to hear the alarm if it went off, Cadmus observes. Mina nods, but she's only half paying attention. She's studying the pressure plate carefully and biting her lip. You know, this shouldn't be too hard to deactivate. Cadmus looks unconvinced. Is that really wise? 
given that whoever set this trap is probably nearby. If something goes wrong, we'll be announcing our presence, and even if it doesn't... Mina interrupts. I know it's a risk, Cadmus, but we're short on options. You can't go on much longer, and truth be told, neither can I. We need to rest. Properly rest, I mean. And this is the first place we've come across that's even vaguely defensible. If we dragged the door over there and laid it across the doorway and maybe blocked that exit with those metal sheets. But we need to disable this alarm first. We can't risk it going off while we're moving around. Cadmus looks like he might argue, but seems to lack the energy. As you say, let's be done with it then. Mina extracts her tools, fixes her monocle in place and gestures to Cadmus. Okay, this is going to be a little delicate... I just need you to put your finger under here. Do you see? That will prevent the plate from making contact there while I'm removing these connectors. Now, hold steady. It's a delicate operation, but Mina's hands are sure, and in moments the trap is deactivated. Mina grins at Cadmus. You see? Nothing to it. And we've got ourselves... Hmm, 14 gold into the bargain. Now, give me a hand with this door. They spend the next 15 minutes making the place as safe from intrusion as they are able, and then finally both slump down, backs against the wall. You know, Mina says, utterly exhausted, I think whatever smashed into this place and destroyed it was some sort of mechanical construct. Did you see the dents in the door? And those ones over there on the wall? Fists by the look of it. Massive metal fists. Cadmus smiles, and Mina is fairly sure it's the first time she's seen him do it. Mina, does that brain of yours ever stop working? It's about to, she concedes, though one of us really should take watch. They're both asleep before she can finish her sentence. I confess, I'm starting to get a little nervous for Mina. It was a bit of a gamble heading down here into what basically constitutes a near-endless mega-dungeon, and with her only at a lowly, squishy level 2. But I figured she could always just leave again if things got particularly dangerous. That option, though, was removed when she realised that she would either have to abandon Cadmus to his fate, or press on with him into danger. This was quite a defining moment for Mina, and one that, when role-playing it out, felt as though it came from as much a place of guilt as it came from a place of basic decency. Putting myself into Mina's head, she felt haunted by the firestorm she'd caused in the spot, and she's determined to have no more innocent deaths on her conscience. I say she, but it's sort of I. I was haunted by those deaths. I felt that guilt and that determination not to fail again. I dearly love playing role-playing games with my gaming group, and having that unique joy of collaboratively building an emergent shared reality and story with people I love and trust. Even playing RPGs with total strangers can give me some degree of that same enjoyment. But there is something different that you can get in a solo RPG, I think. Something perhaps narrower, but deeper. I've got totally into role-playing many characters that I've played in group games inhabiting the role I'm playing, and becoming absorbed in the story being told together. But I don't think I'm ever as fully immersed in a character as I'm able to be in a solo game. 
In a solo game, I have the luxury of time. I can reflect for longer and more deeply on who my character is, on what they're feeling and thinking, and why. Anyhow, I mentioned that I feared for Mina, and that's certainly true. She's scared, and her fear is bleeding over into me. This is a dangerous place to get lost in, low on supplies and short on backup. Some notes on my dungeon delving prompts. My first two were common areas and empty, that meant there was nothing useful to me there, and so they served quite well as descriptive dressing for the opening teaser section. That first location, the incomprehensible dwarven machinery, was the result of a mythic description role, infuriatingly mysterious. The interpretation there was very much a product of context. Knowing my character, nothing would infuriate her more than machinery she didn't understand. And, knowing my setting, I knew that ancient dwarven master engineers had built this incredible place. Two of this dungeon's themes are arcane mechanisms and incredible power, after all. The real curveball was still to come, though. Trying to find out if she was anywhere near the surface, but expecting the opposite to be true, I asked if she was deep. And the answer was exceptional yes, which led me to the conclusion that somehow the underpipes they found themselves in were actually inside the chain link. That is most definitely not canon, at least not until now, and has potentially interesting implications. We'll explore those if they become relevant. I considered adding that to my mythic thread list, but I think for now it's probably covered by the existing thread, Investigate the Underpipes, so I'll leave it for now. The destroyed outpost was the result of another Perilous Wilds roll. This time I got the Shadowy Forces theme and an unnamed unique location, which Mythic informed me was angrily messy. Combining those, I envisaged a smashed hardpoint that hinted at some sort of battle between unknown rival factions. My dungeon exploration move also resulted in a discovery, treasure, and a danger, a trap. I used dungeon for both of these and then a thieves tools skill check, plus the guidance cantrip and advantage from Cadmus's help action. That all went pretty well. So the chaos factor will drop once more to five. Mina wakes. She has no idea how much time has passed, but the morning sunlight is warm on her skin, and she feels calm and at peace. Wait, sunlight? That can't be right. She blinks, properly awake, and as she sits up, a luminescent cloud of tiny, hovering, winged creatures rises from where they had settled upon her. They seem to have been attracted by the magic in your equipment, Cadmus notes. He has stood on the far side of the outpost, moving slowly through a series of elaborate martial forms. Your pistol, collar, and coat pouches were covered in the things. Mina gets to her feet, and the glowing, gossamer-winged cloud dissipates. Well, they certainly weren't attracted by food or water, she says, glumly, rummaging through her pack. We're completely out of both, and if we don't find either soon, finding a way out of this place will be the least of our worries. Cadmus smiles. I think I may have a solution for part of that problem, at least. Take a look at this. 
he indicates a tiny patch of purple fungus growing at the base of a wall. Then, before Mina can protest, he cups his hand around the crop of small mushrooms, intones a quiet prayer, and then bathes them in divine light. He plucks one and passes it to her. Try it. Mina does so, though with some trepidation, but astonishingly, the tiny morsel leaves her feeling full and satisfied. Cadmus scoops up the little mushroom patch and tears off a strip of his tattered tunic and carefully wraps it. We'll still need to find water, but with care this should keep us both fed. The pair set out once more, stomachs no longer grumbling, sharing stories of how they came to be here. They trek for several hours, up through more interminable pipe-lined passageways that wind and double back on themselves, and not once do they see anything to suggest a way out. Finally, they emerge into a wider space. Ahead, in the distance, they can see a tangle of thick copper pipes rising vertically perhaps 80 feet from a squat metal construction at the centre of a comparatively open area. Several more large pipes converge on the central building, snaking across the open space from walls some 60 feet away. The whole dome-like chamber is lined with tubes and thrumming machinery. Do you feel that, Cadmus? Mina asks. That vibration underfoot. The entire time Mina has been in the underpipes, there has been a constant sense of the power inherent in this place. The whole place feels alive with energy. This chamber is different. This place positively reverberates, pulsing with barely constrained power. As they step into the chamber, Mina catches a sudden glimpse of movement. Get down, she whispers, but it's too late. Emerging from behind the building come two peculiar figures. They are clad in tattered leathers, their skin painted blue, covered with all manner of piercings, body art and adornments. One of them, a tall, gangly fellow, points and shouts, Intruders! Great shaman! Intruders invade the sanctum! Mina ducks behind what appears to be a hydraulic pump and draws her arcane pistol. Take cover, Cadmus! But instead, Cadmus walks forward, his arms raised. We mean you no harm, he calls out. We wish to talk. Mina peeks around the pump just in time to see a bearded, heavily built man emerge from the building, flanked by two more blueskins. A necklace of what appear to be human bones swing from his neck, and his whole body is completely covered in swirling, fluid patterns. Defilers! Infiltrators! Prostrate yourselves before me! The man bellows, sweeping his arms above his head and to her horror, Mina feels her body moving against her will. Her muscles are in open rebellion. She forces her arm up, aims, and fires. The projectile, wreathed in coruscating purple light, slams into the shaman's shoulder, half spinning him around. Not that Mina sees it. She finds herself on her hands and knees, forehead pressed to the ground. From that position, she hears Cadmus yelling, Stop! Stop! Violence is not the answer. We surrender. And then she hears the bearded shaman call out, My acolytes, seize the invaders. Let them answer for their trespass in blood. She gets a degree of satisfaction from the pain in his voice. 
the four blue-skinned warriors, each clutching a wavy-bladed Chris dagger, leap out from behind cover and close in fast, attempting to pile on and restrain Mina and Cadmus. But the shaman's magic has weakened. Mina wrenches herself free of its grip, regaining physical control. She rolls to one side, grabbing a brass cylinder from her belt as she scrambles to her feet. Seize this, she snaps, as the goons close in on her. She presses a stud on the tube and a stream of acid sprays into the first man's face. He shrieks and staggers backwards, clawing at his eyes as he falls. His companion is luckier, managing to dive to one side as the others flank Cadmus. These two faint back and forth, and they both lash out at once. The devotee blocks each thrust with a forearm, and then closes his eyes, whispers a supplication, and his whole body begins to glow with an inner light. The knife-wielders glance nervously at one another, and then back away, shielding their eyes as the glow intensifies. Cretins! the wounded shaman yells, striding towards the combatants and drawing water up from below the floor gratings into a rapidly spinning globe. If you can't hold them, I will slay them myself! With a savage gesture, he hurls the spinning ball at the devotant, but it simply evaporates in the face of his growing radiance. The shaman's face contorts with fury. Kill them! One of his acolytes dashes forward, intent upon stabbing at Cadmus, but he instantly recoils with a howl of pain, his flesh blistering and burning in the face of the devotant's holy light. Mina has drawn a dagger of her own, wielding it left-handed as she tries to fend off one of the blueskins and get off a pistol shot. She quickly discovers her opponent is a considerably more skilled knife fighter than she is, which is to say that he has some degree of skill. He presses relentlessly, denying her any opportunity to catch a breath. Blood flows from a series of minor cuts. Then the opening appears. The scream as Cadmus's radiant aura sears his attacker allows Mina to scramble back and have just an instant in which she can take aim and fire. Rather than shoot at her attacker, she fires instead at the shaman. His head and that of the acolyte standing directly behind him explode, spattering the remaining followers in a shower of gore. Headless, the two men's knees buckle. They topple forward, arms splayed. The two remaining blueskins freeze, wide-eyed, and then pull back, their knives extended defensively. They circle back to back, but suddenly the balance of this conflict has very much shifted. Nina backs away, her pistol trained on the pair. You've seen what this thing can do? Drop your weapons and you have my word we won't kill you. Adrenaline is coursing through her. Her heart is pounding and in the back of her mind a quiet voice is whispering. You just ended three lives you know nothing about and you're threatening two more, who you know you can kill before they get within ten feet of you. Are you really okay with that? The boulder of the two warriors, the gangly lookout who first spotted them, points his knife at her. To hell with you, intruder, he snarls. You defile our holy bliss? You slay our great shaman, father of Hydra clan, and then command us to do your bidding? Never, you filthy heathens! If you would sully our sacred waters, if you trespass upon our lands, you'll have to slay us for them. Well, 
bugger. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I include any links mentioned on that site, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any mechanics information. The story will continue in the next episode of Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.